everyone, it's Leslie Keith here again with another Research Update Flash Briefing. I'm the Director of Research and President of the Board for the Lipedema Project. I like to keep you abreast of the latest research of relevance to lipedema with these flash briefings. The paper I would like to review for you today is called The Advanced Care Study, Current Status of Lipedema in Spain, a Descriptive Cross-Sectional Study. This was written by two researchers in Valencia, Spain. It was published in the peer-reviewed journal, International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health in August, 2023. The aim of their study was to assess the current state of lipedema in Spain by looking at the symptoms experienced and the treatments utilized. They also looked at the effectiveness of treatments used by study participants and the impact of the COVID pandemic lockdowns on lipedema symptoms. So the methods that they used for the study was, it was a descriptive cross-sectional study. So it analyzed an online questionnaire. Data was collected over nine months between 2021 and 2022. The questionnaires were distributed to leading regional and national patient associations for lipedema in Spain. In order to be included in the study, participants needed to have a diagnosis of lipedema or meet at least six criteria for lipedema if they were undiagnosed. The questionnaire had 46 items that asked about demographics, medical and family history, lipedema symptoms and severity, which treatments they attempted and the results of each, the impact of lipedema on their quality of life, and the impact of COVID lockdowns. Questions were also asked about liposuction surgery outcomes, if applicable. So let's look at the participants in this study. So after excluding those who were not diagnosed and did not have at least six symptoms of lipedema, the total number of participants in the study was 969. 717 of them, or 74% of the participants, had a diagnosis of lipedema. The remaining 252 participants, or 26%, did not have a diagnosis of lipedema, but they met the criteria to be included in the study. So let's look at some of the results. So just looking at kind of the basic description of, of each participant, we're looking at the average on some of this information for weight. When we looked at their BMI, which again is not very descriptive for lipedema, but that's what they used here. They had almost 40% of the participants were average weight, 31% were overweight, and 32% would be classified as obese. And interestingly, 63% of the participants were either classified as overweight or obese. And this is much higher than the adult female population in Spain because that's typically 46%. So again, it might be because BMI is not so good of a measure for lipedema, or it could be that there's quite often a comorbidity of obesity with lipedema we're not sure from this survey. Another interesting result was when they answered, when did their lipedema start? And in this study, 73% of the participants said that they thought that their lipedema symptoms began at puberty. I thought that was very interesting. And they did not report on how many people said that it started at pregnancy, but they did say a very limited amount 
notice the onset at menopause at less than 2%. You have to remember too, that sometimes you do have lipedema, but it really takes off at menopause. So sometimes you think that's when it triggers. It could actually very much trigger there, but you might've had it before and it just really exacerbated at menopause. And then when they were asked to say which type of lipedema they had, the most prevalent type was type three. And that's the type of lipedema where you have that fat deposition from the waist to the ankles and those 42% of the participants. And then almost 37% of the participants had what's called type four. And in this study, they were characterizing type four lipedema as occurring from waist to ankle and having lipedema in the arms as well. And then they had another 18% that had type two. And this was lipedema that presented from the waist to the knees and type one was under 4%. And this was lipedema that presented just in the hips and the buttocks. So that's kind of the distribution of the types. The participants answered some questions about comorbidities, what other conditions that they have along with their lipedema. And 52% of the participants said they had other conditions. So that means 48% did not have anything besides lipedema, a pretty healthy population, actually. And so of the 52% that had another condition, here's what they said they had. 28% said they also had obesity along with their lipedema. Another 16% said they were diagnosed with hypothyroidism. 9% said they were diagnosed with lymphedema. And less than 1%, 0.8%, said they had type 2 diabetes. The authors pointed out, it was really interesting that the incidence of lymphedema in this study population was actually four times higher than the incidence of lymphedema in the general Spanish population. And, but the converse is true with the diabetes, that the incidence of diabetes in this group was six times lower than the general population. The general population has type 2 diabetes, um, almost 7% of the general population has type 2 diabetes. And in this group, it was 0.8%. So that's interesting with those comorbidities. Let's look at the symptoms. They had very similar results between the diagnosed group and the undiagnosed group that had at least six of those symptoms. So they were very similar in when they said which symptoms they had. And 94% of those two groups together, the diagnosed and undiagnosed, had a feeling of heaviness or swollen legs. And almost 92% said they were non-responsive to diets. Increased tendency or easy bruising was over 88%. Non-responsive to exercise was 86%. Having a disproportion between the arms and legs, meaning that really we had a lot more volume in the lower body was 83%. Pain on palpation was 83%. Having nodules in the affected area was 76%. And then spontaneous pain was only 56%. I've seen much higher in other studies. So that's interesting that that one was the lowest. I just gave you the top presenting symptoms 
So these were the top seven, and actually the pain was the lowest of the top seven. So let's look at what the participants reported as difficulties that they experienced due to lipedema. 92% said they had difficulty finding clothes. 73% said that they were restricted in their ability to perform certain activities and sports. Being active was difficult. Difficulty in socializing, 42%. 36% had difficulty just performing everyday tasks. 35% reported they had difficulty with a romantic partner. And so again, I just gave you the top ones. There was a lot fewer for the other responses after these top five. And then issues with getting a diagnosis. This is always interesting when they report this. And a majority of participants who were able to get a diagnosis required three or more visits to different specialists before they were diagnosed. And this was 52% of those that had a diagnosis. And the remainder of the diagnosed participants, they needed to see five or more specialists. So we can see it's still difficult to get a diagnosis. And then the pandemic, there was a little bit of weight gain in response to being confined or in lockdowns seemed to be the only response to that. And it was an average of three kilograms or six and a half pounds due to being confined to home for a period of time. The next thing on the results was they talked about what diet the participants were using. And this was very interesting. 59% of the participants followed some kind of uh, prescribed diet. And they reported that the diets that seemed to work the best were the ketogenic diet and an anti-inflammatory diet. And so a ketogenic diet, which was described by the participants as either keto or high protein or carbohydrate free, 25% used this diet. Another 17% used what they called an anti-inflammatory diet. This was gluten-free and dairy-free. There's a lot of overlap with the ketogenic diet there, but the participants described their diet as anti-inflammatory. The next one they described as a, quote, healthy diet. I thought that was interesting. Only 15% used a diet that was largely fruits and vegetables, sometimes described as a Mediterranean diet. They called that a healthy diet. And then other diets, I, does this mean that anti-inflammatory and ketogenic and other diets are not healthy. I don't know. But the other ones, they had just under 10% that were using one of these other diets, vegetarian, fasting, or a, a low calorie or a hypocaloric diet. So I thought that was an interesting spread and interesting distribution and, and different dietary interventions. And then what did the participants feel like how did their interventions work for them? What things did they do and how did they work? And interesting that it seemed like a combination of treatments seemed to work the best. That had the highest level of having benefit, making change in their symptoms. And then just below using a holistic or a multi approach was surgery alone. That was interesting. Then they listed some treatments that 
seem to work, give at least some benefit and some quite a bit of benefit, some a little bit less, but it seemed to give at least some benefit 75% of the time, usually much more often. The least effective were two treatments that I'm really unfamiliar with, but those two treatments that they listed were radiofrequency and mesotherapy. I really don't know anything about those treatments, but they weren't very effective according to these participants. The top performing interventions after surgery, so remember it was holistic or multi-treatments, then surgery, and then next was CDT or complete decongestive therapy. And that really is a combination of treatments because remember that's manual lymph drainage, that's compression bandaging or some kind of compression therapy, skin care, exercise. So that is a combination intervention, then compression socks, then anti-inflammatory diet, and very last, the least effective was low impact exercises by themselves. I thought these were very interesting results in this study. So the authors conclude that lipedema is a significant health problem in Spain that requires a multidisciplinary approach for the best results. They also conclude that since the results for the diagnosed and undiagnosed participants were very similar, this shows that the requirement of needing at least six characteristics to be included in the study was a good diagnostic criteria. In other words, the authors believe there was a very high probability that the undiagnosed participants in the study actually had lipedema. However, this study also shows how difficult it is to get a diagnosis. In order for the participants to receive appropriate and timely treatment, we must do better at diagnosing lipedema. This paper is really important for individuals with lipedema because it provides us with a greater perspective on the global impact of this condition. People are challenged with lipedema around the world, and many have difficulties getting diagnosed and accessing appropriate, effective, and timely treatment. But this is changing with greater awareness by both patients and those in the medical community. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you haven't already subscribed to our daily flash briefings of tips, tools, and research about lipedema, you can subscribe at Apple, Spotify, Amazon Alexa, or at this website, lipedema-simplified.org slash flash, where you'll find an archive of all of our flash briefings. You can now also follow Living Well with Lipedema on Amazon Music and get new episodes when they become available. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time for another Research Update Flash Briefing.